Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. We're here as usual to answer questions about meditation practice and the practice of the Buddha's teaching. So if you have questions of practical concern for yourself, please feel free to ask them in the chat at any time. We'll spend the first 15 minutes in silent meditation. It's an opportunity to collect yourself and ground yourself in the present moment. Opportunity for our volunteers to collect the questions. And after 15 minutes, I will be back to begin answering.
All right, we're back. So we will begin to begin to answer questions now. If you have questions, continue to post them in chat. If you don't have questions, or once you've answered, asked your questions, just stay mindful. There's no video in these sessions. That's on purpose. The idea is that you should be mindful, focused on yourself rather than focused on me or us or the the uh, the video or the audio. So the audio is just to answer your questions, but try to keep mindfulness at the forefront. Thank you, Bhante. We do have questions. Can meditation also cause our awareness of conceptual world to exhibit signs of impermanence, suffering, and non-self? Since commencing the at-home course, most outcomes in daily life occur contra to highly probable expectations. This would seem to reinforce the intellectual understanding of impermanence, suffering, and non-self. The, the, I mean, the question's really just you're looking for reassurance. I, I don't know how valuable it is to give you such reassurance. You should be a little more um, reliant on your own experience and and a little read a little read a little less into the experience. So the way you should approach this is looking at these experiences as existential. They they exist, and that's it. So try and see them as such. You, you, what you're describing is something that shouldn't be unexpected through meditation. But rather than trying to put a label on it and say, "Oh, that's what's that's the meditation is doing that," or as some kind of reassurance that you're doing it right, you shouldn't really look for those sorts of reassurance. You should note the doubting. Try and uh, re um, adjust your mind so that rather than wondering or worrying that the meditation might not be bringing you any anything of value or look for reassurance like oh look this is the meditation doing this yeah just try to be mindful of the doubting or the worry or that sort of thing after the initial experience of enlightenment and entering the stream sotapanna is volition still necessary for progression to arahant? If there is no volition, then there would be no choice in reducing the number of lifetimes from the maximum seven to becoming an arahant for sure in the same lifetime when the stream entered. So volition is jetana, and uh, don't quote me on this, but I th I I'm rusty here. I can't remember. An arahant may not have jetana, but doesn't make sense now does it i'm embarrassing myself because my abhidham is rusty but it seems to me that even an arahant has jaitan i mean it's just a technical thing if they don't but um certainly a sotapanna still has jaitana which means intention or volition so yeah i wouldn't overthink that generally volition is a bit more um simple than maybe you're thinking you know? And you're maybe putting too much on a sotapanna. Sotapanna still has greed, anger, and delusion. So they're still going to uh, have unwholesome jetana, or un unwholesome volition, let's say. 
or they're going to have unwholesome uh, mind states which relate to volition or which which instruct or inform their volition or uh, corrupt their volition so not only the volition to or the will or the inclination to become enlightened or to practice mindfulness but also bad volitions will still crop up Will I get over the heartbreak of a relationship practicing this meditation technique and just Buddhism in general? I feel so broken and I fell away from the Buddha's teachings for a while. Well, the Buddha's teachings help with such things. So the fact that you feel heartbroken is just a sign that you're not very skilled in mindfulness. It's pretty simple. You don't have to worry too much about all of the many Buddha's teachings, but... Let's make it a bit simpler and ask whether mindfulness will uh, help you with heartbreak. Of course it will, because the heartbreak is caught up in a chain of habit, the desire, the um, the seeking out, and the enjoying, which leads to the addiction, which leads to more desire, which leads to more seeking out. It's a cycle, right? But mindfulness changes that. It cuts that and makes you less... Um, dependent or less controlled by your desires, less of a slave to craving or clinging. Uh, it's a, it, mindfulness is just a different habit. And so, of course, anything you develop changes your habits. Mindfulness is no exception. Anything you do with your mind, because mindfulness is so pure and so simple, it, it just breaks all the other habits down. It, it replaces them. And yeah, so just try and be mindful of the broken feelings. Don't worry about the Buddhist teaching or Buddhism or that sort of thing. Those are valuable things, but they're most valuable to support your practice of mindfulness. And you can be mindful of anything. That's the, the special nature of mindfulness. You don't have to be, quote-unquote, practicing Buddhism or something. You can be mindful anytime. Right now you can be mindful of your broken feelings. Not broken, I mean, that's just your pejorative description of it if you have feelings and they're like sadness or desire or anger those sorts of things fear even make sure you're noting them when i was being mindful in daily life i looked absent in class to my teachers they were pointing it out that made me doubt if i had been doing the practice correctly could you give an advice well, to some extent, it takes practice to be truly mindful as opposed to just um, concentrated. I mean, mindfulness, you can be attentive and present, but it's more challenging because it's easier just to shut down and be mindful of a few things and sort of block the rest out. But it really just takes skill. To be mindful, I mean, you, you have to acknowledge that other people are going to judge you based on the fact that you're not like them. Um, if they're not mindful and you're mindful, that's going to be some dissonance. But on the other hand, it's not just mindfulness that you're going to be developing, and you can develop habits that are um, kind of like a crutch, where they're not terrible, but they're going to get in the way, they're going to um, 
in, in, impede your ability to live a normal life or to live a life at all because they're just concentration. It's just blocking stuff out. And just make sure you're being mindful and don't worry too much about what other people think of you. I mean, you can ask, you can ask, like, am I doing something wrong? Is my schoolwork suffering? And sometimes the the um, the proof is in the results. So if your schoolwork is not suffering, then don't worry about how you look in class. But some classes, of course, require participation, and they give you marks on participation, so you have to acknowledge that that's going to be a part of it and take part. The other thing about school is you can't just be mindful all the time. Mindfulness can inhibit a mental, other mental activity, right? Because it is a mental activity. So sometimes you have to acknowledge that you're going to engage in scholarly activity instead. That can, that's another pitfall of mindfulness of um, meditators that they replace all their other yeah, mental activity, which you can't always do. Is the technique learned from the at-home meditation course enough to attain sotapanna fruition if done consistently for a prolonged duration of time with perseverance? Yes, definitely. But enough for who is the question. It's not, not for everyone. For some people, that's not going to be nearly enough. For other people, it could be enough even in this lifetime. But it's probably pretty rare that just doing the at-home course and then practicing a day, an hour or two a day, is going to enlighten anyone. And it's, 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 it would be rare for someone to become enlightened that way. But if you, um, it's more, it would be more um, likely that it, not just for pro prolonged duration, but more intensively. And that's what our actual courses are for. The Atom course is a made-up thing. We, I made it up, or we made it up, or other people have done this, and I've sort of took on the idea and adapted it, and we've created this new thing. But the traditional thing is the intensive courses. That's where we expect people to gain exceptional results. The Atom course is just preparation for that. It's been quite helpful in preparing people for the intensive course. I think it's quite valuable, but more as an introduction and a preparation than an actual uh, enlighten, enlightening experience. I mean, it, even the at-home course itself has changed people's lives, which is quite remarkable, but that change is still just preliminary. It doesn't actually mean enlightenment for most people. So I do recommend people to not... Um, not neglect or trivialize the importance of intensive practice. Is it possible to practice wrong despite trying to do it as instructed? I noticed I now remember lesser daily activities, so I was wondering if that is a sign of progress or indeed practicing wrong. Again, not the way you should really be focusing. Is this is this a sign that something is wrong? Is this a sign that something is right? That's a bad habit to get into. Things are not signs of anything. They are experiences, and it's important to keep it that way. Keep keep experiences just as just experiences. So, what you're talking about, remembering lesser daily activities, you should note that. Like knowing, you can just say knowing. But more important here is going to be your worry. You probably have some worry or concern or doubt fear 
and you should note those. Those are what's what's the issue here, not whether you're practicing wrong or practicing right. It's pretty silly, right? Because the practice that you're instructed is pretty simple. There's no secret that 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 no secret trick to it. There's no trick to it. It's simple, but it's simple. It's not going to magically do something to you. I mean, it, it's it's simple. The results are simple. It allows you to see more clearly. So it sounds like that's part of what's happening here, but make sure you're noting the worry, the fear, and that sort of thing. Those are the real enemies. How is it possible to note if the objects are rapidly changing? I don't have the time to say the full mantra, because when I want to note the next moment, the next object arises, and I don't have the time. Well, if there's many things arising all at once, you should or, or arising very quickly, you should note distracted, distracted. It's a sign that you're not focused. Uh, other than that, you should try to stick with one object and note it until it goes away. Is there benefit in praying to Buddha for help with practice? If yes, what is the most effective prayer to recite? Absolutely not beneficial to pray to the Buddha. The Buddha is not going to hear your prayers. It is beneficial to respect and revere and reflect on the like like um recollect the Buddha is, is highly beneficial, but it's beneficial for you. It's it's for remembering the great qualities of the Buddha, which is such a wonderful thing. The Buddha was an uncomparable teacher, someone who taught the Dhamma that was pure in the beginning, pure in the middle, and pure in the end. Someone who had uh, great compassion in giving up his own enlightenment for the countless lifetimes it took to become a Buddha. Someone who had great wisdom, the wisdom to teach, um, the wisdom to, well, to teach the Dhamma. That was, again, pure in the beginning, pure in the middle, pure in the end. And someone who was perfectly pure. Not only did he give up all greed, anger, and delusion, which is the most important thing, but he also had such a purity in his delivery and his mannerisms. It was just someone who was highly, highly exceptional. So remembering those things is such a great thing for us because it, it aligns us to that and it reaffirms in our mind how the appreciation of good things and our inclination is towards such things. It makes us feel happy and at peace. Remembering the Dhamma, remembering the Sangha, those arahants who have practiced the Buddhist teaching and become enlightened themselves. That's the most effective Buddhist uh, reflection. And there are things that are similar, not, not similar to prayer, but they are mantras, right? There's mantras of those where you reflect on the Buddha in Pali or you can do it in English as well. How can I note the Bawanga? Sometimes I fall into that state and cannot come out. There are before only short many movements of the abdomen and a sense of being aware between all objects. And that's not really how it works. Bawanga is not something you note. And you're, you're kind of mixing Abhidhamma with practice. Abhidhamma, Bawanga is an Abhidhamma term, B-H, not B-A-B-H-A. Is an Abhidhamma term, and so it's not related to practice, not directly. You should note the four Satipatthana. 
but um, this state that you're talking about, just note it after you come out, come out of it. If during the time you can't note, because I guess you're in some kind of um, sleep-like state or something, just note when you come out of it, like knowing, or if there's a feeling, note feeling. With clear thought, is there a need for intellectual understanding in addition to intuitive knowing of impermanence, suffering, and non-self? Can an unwholesome behavior cease unconsciously without knowing intellectually why? Yeah, intellectual knowledge doesn't do anything directly for you. It's only an indirect value. It can reassure you and incline you and uh, sort of direct you towards right practice, but absolutely right practice is what... Um, leads to a change in unwholesome behavior because it's at the mechanical level like it's uh, intellectual has nothing to do with the mechanics of ordinary experience the unwholesome behavior happens at the level of ordinary behavior um momentary experience and so it's momentary experience that's going to change that when you interact with that when you become aware of it when you become aware of the triggers things that trigger unwholesome behavior, then the familiarity with those triggers um, neutralizes the trigger, neutralizes the reaction, and just supersedes any triggering that would occur, and any reaction, any unwholesomeness. Intellectual knowledge can never do that. It's just totally disconnected. Not totally, but it's basically disconnected from reality. The only connection is an abstract one, so it can direct you in the towards right practice. Of course, if you meaning if you read a book on how to meditate, I mean that reading is never going to directly um, confront or change the hindrances, but it can, of course, direct you quite readily to right practice, which in turn, of course, does interact with ordinary uh, or momentary reality. Does contemplation on particular topics also produce vipassana, like contemplation on the nature of society, or nature of pleasure, or nature of relationships, etc.? Can it be a beneficial side practice? It can be a beneficial side practice, but it doesn't produce vipassana. There's a Thai um, a joke that a very famous meditation teacher in Bangkok used to say, he's passed away a long time, but... In his recordings that I listened to, he would say, uh, this is called vipassanik. Vipassanik Nik is a Thai word that means uh, think. So it's not vipassana, it's vipassanik. And he said it's just, um, well, he, he rightly pointed out that it's just intellectual activity. So same as the last question. There's, It's kind of like um, uh, a, a driver for Windows if you have a driver, but you don't have the hardware, maybe that's too abstract. Or if you have a, a, a program like Discord, and the program like Discord, if you don't have the driver, the dri that's more, more accurate. So you need, if you don't have a driver for your audio, then you can't transmit your audio. It doesn't matter whether you have all the programs like Discord or Facebook or Zoom. If you don't have a driver for your video camera, you'll never be able to display your video. The driver is something that's connected to the hardware, I think, something like that. 
The driver has a real connection. So you can think of intellectual discourse like the pro it's like the programs. It's not really not really accurate, but it's it's just too far disconnected from reality is the point. What did the Buddha say in regards to the wholesome worldly desires and meditation? I strive to meditate every day, but my condition makes it difficult to do so for very long. Hmm. Wholesome worldly desires and meditation. I mean, you're not giving me a lot to work on here. Though. I don't quite get how those are connected. Your wholesome worldly desires are keeping you from meditating? Is that the idea? Is that you're fixated on worldly things? So putting yourself in a situation where you're not um, distracted by worldly things is going to be very helpful. Throughout associating with people who are inclined towards meditation is going to be very helpful. So this is the best reason to try and find a way to do an intensive meditation course at a meditation center because it does fulfill all those factors. Just striving to practice on your own every day is going to be a challenge because of how distracted you'll be by things that are not related to meditation, which is pretty much everything else in your life, right? But uh, without understanding your condition, I mean, the fact that you're striving to meditate every day and probably are doing some, it says to do so over very long, well, then you're doing some, right? That's something you should be be happy for. Many people don't meditate at all. Try if you haven't done our at-home course, that's a way to get into it. If you have, then you have to find a way to come and do an intensive course, or do one wherever you live, wherever you're located. Is violence and self-defense permissible in Buddhism? Um, so violence is just a name for actions, right? So it, it's always going to, but let's, first let's tackle the other part. So permissible, Buddhism doesn't forbid things. Buddhism is a thing we undertake, and so we undertake not to do certain things. As a monk, I undertake to do many, diff undertake to not do count many, many, many different things. But as ordinary non-monastic Buddhists, you undertake as Buddhists, to not break the five precepts, the first of which is not to kill. So by undertaking that, of course, you're, you're, you're never going to... Um, that's one thing you're never going to do. You're by undertaking the five precepts, by undertaking to be a Buddhist, you're never going to, to kill, uh, as, as opposed to anything being permissible. It's not that it's not permissible to kill, it's that you wouldn't really be considered a Buddhist. So maybe that's nitpicking, and it's just a different way of saying it, but... Nobody would consider you a Buddhist. Well, I wouldn't consider you a Buddhist if you were killing and, and okay with killing and not feeling bad about killing or not trying to change, not trying to stop killing in any way. Um, right, so that's that part. Um, as far as violence goes, violence is just a word name for an action. So it's usually associated with unwholesome mind states. If you have an unwholesome mind state, that's already... A problem. It doesn't make you not a Buddhist, but if you think that those things are okay, if you say, yes, it's okay to be angry, 
anger is fine, anger is not a problem, then you are in contradiction with Buddhism. And that view kind of makes you outside of the realm of Buddhism. So again, you probably wouldn't be considered a Buddhist if you held that view. Or or at least if you were not trying to... Um, not open to letting go of that view. If you're holding on to that view, that's well, that makes you not a Buddhist. So if you get angry and you do something out of anger, even in self-defense, then it's going to be unwholesome. But you're not breaking any rules. There's no rules like that. If you would ask, is it possible to hurt someone, to cause physical injury on someone, that's the physical action, in self-defense without giving rise to unwholesome mind states? See, it has to be a more complicated question to understand exactly what, how, we would, how we would look at it in Buddhism. I would say the answer is yes. Uh, I think, I mean, Buddhist monks, there's a clue because Buddhist monks are um, beholden to not harm others, but in self-defense there is an exception where we would not be acting out of line by uh, harming someone physically in self-defense. And it certainly is possible to perform actions like that um, without unwholesome mind states. That being said, that's not easy and it's not likely. Mostly you're going to be afraid, you're going to be angry, you're going to be trying to hurt the other person. And so it, there will be unwholesomeness involved. Now that being said, that doesn't completely invalidate the, your um, right to defend yourself. Generally speaking, and probably the sim more simple answer is to say, Yes, generally self-defense is fine as long as it's proportionate, but it's important that you understand what really would make it um, valid and viable and, and free from unwholesomeness is this your state of mind. If you can do it mindfully, then it's really just fine. But usually that doesn't involve hurting others, and quite likely an arahant would never purposefully, physically harm someone, even if it meant... Um, giving up self-defense. But that's because an arahant has done what needs to be done. They have no concern for further practice, no need for continuation of life, no concern for the continuation of their life. For an ordinary Buddhist, there's no expectation that you're on that level. And it could be allowing yourself to die could be of great detriment because who knows what's going to happen when you when you're reborn, right? If you're not ready for death, could be of great detriment to allow yourself to be killed. Will spreading Buddhism through media produce good karma? So again, you're talking about an action, and I have to nitpick here because the actions can never be good karma. Actions cannot in and of themselves be good karma because you could be doing that for very selfish reasons, right? Suppose you do that to make money, right? Suppose we add another factor in here. Spreading Buddhism through media in order to get rich, right? If I can just um, spread this thing to people who want it and who will pay me money for it, well, then there's most likely not going to be good karma at all, right? But it's more complicated than that because good karma is only on a momentary level. It involves your state of mind. So every moment we're creating good and bad karma. 
And you can only give blanket statements that are very general and, and vague about how some action, something you did, like spreading Buddhism through the media, was a good karma or a bad karma. It's not really accurate, but you can generalize and say, it sounds like something that is going to be a good karma, but why is it good karma? Because of the states of mind. So is your was your state of mind pure, or were you full of greed, anger, delusion, fear, worry, etc.? Like some people worry a lot about things like, is this good, is this bad? And that really nullifies any goodness that comes from it. So ultimately, it's just hard to rely upon actions, things to do, saying, oh, this would be a good karma, that would be a good karma. You're much better served by focusing on mindfulness or relying on mindfulness as your base. As a person who is practicing mindfulness, you should absolutely engage in lots of good deeds. But you have the ability to make them good deeds as a as a result of your mindfulness, and that's the difference. So don't don't worry too much about what you do, but don't be um, don't be afraid to do good deeds. The Buddha was this is a quote from the Buddha. He said, "Ma bikuve bayita punyanang." Don't be afraid of goodness. Goodness is another word for happiness. The Buddha said, "Sukasetang bikuve adiwacanang." Adiwacana means a synonym. Punya, goodness, is a synonym for happiness. That's what, he, that's what the Buddha said. Tops up, it's, it's, a, it's a synonym. Which, it isn't really, it isn't literally a synonym, but the Buddha said it was, and he's making a point that there's no difference. You know, good, goodness is all you need to be happy. The problem is, how do you make it goodness? It's not as simple as just doing things. So, first and foremost, be mindful, but as a mindful practitioner, Absolutely, do things like spread Buddhism through media, do things like uh, give support to others in their practice, and so many different types of goodness, even being ethical and being the precepts for recollecting the Buddha we talked about earlier, that's a goodness. There's ten types of goodness, ten types of and maybe that's not exhaustive, but they're the, they're the accepted ten types of goodness. Starting with charity, ethics, meditation, uh, helping others do good deeds, uh, being humble, uh, respecting the good deeds that others have done, or, or um, rejoicing in the good deeds of others, appreciating the good deeds of others, and sharing your good deeds with others so that they may appreciate them and um, dedicating your good deeds to others. Listening to the Dhamma, teaching the Dhamma, and straightening your view, which can be an intellectual exercise but much better served through, a, through the practice of mindfulness, the cultivation of wisdom. Those are the ten types of goodness. Understanding the respect for family. If the family has been a hindrance to personal development despite striving for change, is it reasonable to remove them from our lives? I don't like the idea of removing someone from your life. That's just too controlling. You know? shouldn't try to remove... Mindfulness teaches us not to try to remove anything from our life. It tries to... It teaches us to reframe our relationship to everything, including people. So 
this really doesn't fall outside of the purview of mindfulness. And practice of mindfulness is going to reframe your relationship. So it means probably a lot more distance from people who have been a hindrance or are a hindrance to personal development. You shouldn't be so focused on striving for change in your family. That's not that that's a that's the big no no the big error of trying to change other people, trying to change relationships. You should really just focus on changing yourself, which I mean honestly isn't really about changing yourself. It's about it's about cultivating clarity and wisdom. And the change occurs by itself and it ripples outward. So instead of even focusing on changing yourself directly, literally Focus on understanding yourself and um, becoming more familiar, seeing yourself clearly, seeing your experiences, your your body and your mind more clearly. As you do that, change comes about in yourself. As change comes about in yourself, it comes about in your expressions physically and verbally, which in turn changes your relationships, which in turn changes other people. They will be affected and change um, changed in a good way for sure. For some people, that's going to mean they'll want to just keep their distance from you because they can't stand being around you anymore because you're just in such dissonance to their more worldly and clingy lifestyle or, or behavior. For other people, it's going to mean a waking up and a realizing that that clingy behavior is not pleasant, is not wholesome, is not helpful for anyone. And uh, you make a good example for them. But that's how it works. Removing people from your life is, I would say, the wrong way to go about it. Unless they're, it's it's urgent, like they're um, deeply, deeply unwholesome. But I don't think ever removing people. Like if someone is a murderer, then probably you consider, well, that's outside of my capacity, so I'll remove them from my life and consider that it's, um, it's un unhelpable. But you know, the way the Buddha said it is, for some people, their physical acts are unwholesome, their verbal acts are unwholesome, but you notice that sometimes they have good wholesome mental actions, or sometimes you notice that their speech is good, or sometimes their actions are good. And so you just cut off the part that is bad. You likened it to, say, uh, uh, a robe. When a monk is making a robe from rags, they go about looking for discarded cloth, but cloth goes bad, so they have to examine the cloth and tear off the part that is rotten or, or yeah, and decrepit and keep the part that is still solid and intact. Uh, so same with people. Sometimes you have to just put aside the part that is unwholesome. Most people have parts to them. To what extent should we endure pain in meditation? I think I've maybe been too hard-headed about not moving when in pain, in lieu of being mindful. Yeah, you can certainly move when being mindful. Just make sure you're not wanting to move. Note the pain first, but when it becomes unbearable, just say wanting to move, moving, moving. You'll be served much better that way than trying to just grit and bear it. There's no value. I mean, you don't you don't get a, a special reward for not moving. There's there's some value in not moving, but only 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 for someone who is developed, who is skilled, and so you have to find the happy medium and 
be like a boxer. A boxer can't just stand there and take the punches, right? They have to dodge and weave as well. So sometimes you have to dodge and weave. In war, sometimes you have to retreat. You can't just keep advancing and see who has the most troops. You have to retreat and be strategic about it. Just don't always be retreating. Don't always be running away from the pain, that's all. You have to understand that eventually you're going to have to face it. I've been practicing insight meditation for 12 years and also have been learning other aspects of mindfulness. What would be your advice in regards to being consistent even when life gets a bit tough? Life isn't consistent. Your mind is not consistent, so don't worry about that. Trying to be consistent is probably a bit of a hindrance. Uh, you know, it kind of speaks to the identification of I having practiced meditation for 12 years. There's no such thing. You practice in moments, and life is chaotic, so those moments are going to be chaotic. And I mean, it's admirable. It's, it's certainly worth appreciating that you have been engaging in this for the past 12 years, but that's kind of misleading for you uh, in that it creates a narrative and gives you the idea of, of, of being someone who has done this for 12 years. And, and that kind of props you up and makes you think that you're something, but you're, you're nothing, of course. And all you are is moments. And all of that is, is, is a distraction. Not irrelevant, but it's a distraction. Thinking about how you have practiced, how you will practice. Focus on the present moment and don't worry about consistency. You have to learn to let go of that and just be present. But my advice, intensity, find a way to do intensive practice. I can't seem to focus on the breath without trying to control it. Any advice? So we don't focus on the breath in this tradition. We focus on the stomach, and it's a bit of a nitpick. I just, it's really not all that important, but I just want to be clear that you're practicing according to the way we teach, which is not technically to focus on the breath, it's to focus on the stomach. Now, it's likely that you are practicing the way we teach because this is a huge problem for people who focus on the stomach. There's a sense that there's a tension in the way we tense up when we try to control things. And that's fine. It's just an experience. It's something you're learning about. You're learning about how stressful it is to try to control things and how incongruous or uh, out of sync it is with reality. Out of touch, we, out of touch it is to try to control things. So that's what you're learning. The advice is to, um, well, I mean, in, in one sense, there's no advice because it's not about something going wrong. My advice is to practice so that you see yourself trying to control it, which is exactly what you're doing, right? So there's nothing wrong. My advice is, is an encouragement to be patient and observe how stressful it is. And I guess probably something that you, you're not doing is noting the tension, noting the stress, noting the frustration even when you try to con when you feel like you're trying to control it. But just note the experiences. It's kind of a bit of a description rather than an experience to say you're trying to control it. That's not really accurate. What's accurate is there's an experience of tension, frustration, desire even. Those are all experiences, and you have to get used to looking at reality like that. So when you look at the stomach, note rising, then there's tension, there's frustration, and all those things. Those are all just objects that you can note. That's the advice, really.
What are the Buddhist views on self-healing, healing diseases like cancer and infections? Well, it's not really in the purview of, of the Buddhist views. Um, I think there's an acknowledgement of the potential for the mind to affect the body. Um, but since Buddhism isn't about healing or curing physical diseases, it doesn't fall within the purview of Buddhist views. Buddhist views are about suffering, the cause of suffering, the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. And the only one that touches upon disease is the first one. The first one is uh, suffering. Diseases are suffering. And so the cause of diseases is really the desire that leads us to be reborn. I mean, there are other, there are other relationships like desire for good food, or tasty food leads to a lot of sicknesses. Anger and so on leads to stress, and delusion can lead to sickness as well. So the second one is a bit related, I suppose. But uh, ultimately it's about suffering and realizing that the reason why you suffer from diseases like cancer and infections is because of your attachment, your desire for pleasant sensations, your aversion towards unpleasant sensations, and your ignorance about the nature of those sensations. So through mindfulness, that ignorance disappears, and as a result of the disappearance of ignorance, desire and clinging disappears, and dependency disappears, and suffering disappears. Ante, we've got a little time left, but we've presented every question brought before us. Wow, that's... Uh... That's new. Good questions, everyone. Thank you. I hope the answers were valuable and beneficial. Let's say we do another three minutes of meditation just to round out the hour. So let's do three minutes until the end of the hour, and then we'll end there.
right. Thank you all. Have a good week. Wish you all peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. Thank you, Chris and Jim, for your help. And whoever else was around helping. Sadhu. Sadhu. <laughs>